Welcome to the Energy Fellows podcast, where each episode is designed to share expertise and experiences from U.S. and global energy fellows. They provide direction and possible solutions for ultimate journey results. Here's your host, Mark Stansberry. Enabling best-in-class customer experience and operational excellence in a hyper-connected oil and gas world, TCS prioritizes problem-solving and leverages customer insights to drive real business results. To find out more, go to TCS.com. That's TCS.com. Welcome to another episode of the Energy Fellows. I'm Mark Stansbury, your host. And today I'm delighted to have a guest before I announce the guest that I look forward to announcing. We've got to go through some house cleaning here and make sure we have everything in order. And that is, first of all, TCS, our sponsor. You can look at our show notes and see uh, how to contact them, learn more about them as well. Thank you for the sponsors. Thanks to OGGN. And we're so thankful for the opportunity to be here with you today and to talk about energy issues and views. We hope you'll go to the show notes also. Uh, take about 10 seconds to go there and you might be able to get some neat items from that survey. So be sure to go to the survey. And then also, uh, we'd love to hear from you and get some ideas of how we're doing. We'd like to get some critiques from you. So you can also go to our show notes on that as well to give reviews and tell us about what you would like to hear from us as well. Well, today, it's an honor, truly honor, someone that's served under seven presidents through the years and Department of Energy and what an experience you've had, Elena Melkert. Welcome to the Energy Fellows. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Mark. Yes. Actually, I started in the oil business when I was 10 years old, so seven <laughs> presidents was easy to do, right? Well, I was ahead of you about 12 years old. I think that's when <laughs> getting started. So, <laughs> so welcome. We're so excited about this because, you know, we've already talked about in a conversation we had recently, somebody we both knew or met. And so it's really funny and that many years in the business, I've been in business for some 45 years plus. And so it's amazing how many people that I don't know, but how many people I do know that we definitely probably have some common grounds there. But let's start off with you. A fascinating career. Unbelievable. And when you're talking about the Department of Energy, and first of all, you have a podcast and you have all this experience and it's just a wonderful life. It sounds like you've had in the energy sector and especially the director and research when it comes to oil and gas upstream. Fascinating. Let's start with your life and tell us about where it began and just take your time, if you will, because, you know, I gained from this as well. And I know others do. Those that are up and coming leaders, those that are in leadership positions now, those are going to be students or graduate students or senior fellows. We can all take something from this. So please take your time and love to hear about it. Okay. Well, telling me to take my time with a microphone in front of me is kind of like a dangerous territory. Well, I've got a timer, by the way, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but you might have to use it. You might have to use it. Well, okay. Yes. Yeah, so I've been in the oil and gas business for over 40 years, 41 years, actually. It's the only thing I know. I love it. I had a circuitous path to becoming a petroleum engineer, and I'll tell you about that. But once you find what you love to do, then it's just, I don't say easy, but mm -hmm. it's not hard anymore. Right. And so I'm grateful for all the opportunities that I've had and grateful that I was able to take advantage of so many opportunities. And so that's the deal there. I'm from California, Southern California, Orange County, where you find Huntington Beach, mm -hmm. the surfing capital of the world. And Disneyland, right? right? The Magic Kingdom. So I'm from Southern California, born and raised. My parents are from El Paso, Texas. And, you know, Texans are very loyal to their state slash country. 
So my cousins would always tease me, oh, you Californian, you Californian. So I always used to say I was half Texan because my parents were from El Paso, Texas. So, And I've used that line later on in, in life <laughs> as I've been in the oil business. Let's see, so Orange County, like I said, born and raised in uh, Southern California along the beach. And then when I finally found my scientific career, I was a nerd girl, you know, growing <laughs> up a little girl who was always interested in, you know, books. I lived in Oceanside, California. I was born in Oceanside, California, and lived there till I was 12. Mm-hmm. And Love the beach, but I also love the library. And so I would walk from our house to the beach or walk from my house to the library. And as I got older, go to the library more often. I'd, I'd walk into this beautiful little, tiny little library now that I know what libraries can be like, obviously here in Washington with the Library of Congress, but walked into this tiny little library, which I thought was wonderful. And I'd look at all these books. And I thought all this beautiful knowledge, all these wonderful things that the people know and love. Did it play with dolls a lot? Because it, it was interested in scientific things. I had a rock collection, and I was always trying to do these little experiments and you know trying to figure stuff out. But I was never encouraged to go into science or going to STEM, as we say now. I never really met a female scientist or technologist or doctor or <laughs> we were nurses, obviously, but not the hardcore scientific person. So I went to school and my high school is fairly famous. Modern day high school in Southern California, Santa Ana, California is known for football. It was a feeder school to USC. But mm-hmm. this last year, they played at the Rose Bowl for their division. And of course, I'm not really a football person. But the point is, is that <laughs> they were, it was a national event. It was, you know, shown on television and everything, modern day monarchs. So anyway, and we lost. It was sad. Oh, yeah, very on. And I was, when we moved here to Washington and, you know, you meet a lot of people and people really take their sports seriously. Seriously, some places. <laughs> right. and so I had a carpool, and my friend in the carpool said, So, where did you go to school? You know, tell me about, you know, obviously in carpool, when you're commuting for 45 minutes in a carpool, that you run out of stuff to talk about. Tell me about your life. And I said, I went to Modern Day High School, and he said, The Modern Day. And I go, Well, a Modern Day. <laughs> it was in California, Southern California. He goes, Yeah, football. I go, Oh, yeah, big football school. He says, Yeah. And so here in Washington, D.C., he knew all about Modern Day and their record and those kinds of things. So kind of proud of that. Just had my uh, 50th high school reunion last year. Mm -hmm. So I got to see a lot of people, but those are wonderful relationships. My two best girlfriends from high school came to visit me just a couple months ago, see the fall. And they were just in love with all the turning of the leaves and everything. Mm -hmm. But it's it's definitely winter now. It's cold. It's not snowing, but it's really cold. So, and all the leaves have fallen. And now I understand that song, you know, California Dreamin' from the <laughs> old song by now, Mamas and the Papas. I remember but the point it. is, is yeah. that I never understood that being, you know, growing up in California where there's no weather, there's no uh, winter, there's <laughs> no true. summer, you know, there's only spring and fall, I guess is the way to put it. Yep. Temperature changes maybe 10 degrees over the course of the year. So anyway, went to a college, uh, Cal State Fullerton, and didn't finish. I was a business major, didn't know what I wanted to major in. So I asked my parents and they said, oh, business this is a good career for a woman. You should think about business. I got into business and I was like almost the only woman in this class of all men. It, it was hard. And so that didn't work. So then I went into ornamental horticulture. I thought maybe I'll go into plants. I'll learn about plants. 
ornamental horticulture. Yeah, we're going to plant store, you know, do something like that. I got that associate's degree, but that's what introduced me to science. I had a botany class that I loved, and I had a fertilizers class that I loved. Interesting, yes. And that got me into the chemistry and the botany. And of course, now here in my career as a petroleum engineer, we're going to draw up energy, and we have the issues with oil and gas, people not supporting oil and gas, and the notion that all of our food depends on fertilizer, which comes in large part from natural gas. So full circle, I completely understand that. Anyway, I went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, and I got a bachelor's degree in soil science. And so when it came to the unconventional resources, reservoirs and the rocks and just the very low permeability environments, I really understood how difficult it was for fluids to move from pore to pore to pore at the, at the nanoscale when even the smallest precipitate, you know, geochemistry, mm-hmm. a precipitate could cause a blockage in some of the pores. And I understood the difference between clays and clay swelling and clay, you know, being a, their cation exchange capacity and how that contributed to the geochemistry. Anyway, all of that came into play. So even though I changed majors like six times, <laughs> I was able to bring so much of it together in my career. And so that's why I really, as I say, I found something I love. It wasn't hard. It wasn't easy, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't hard because when it's a good match, Mm -hmm. it's easy to move forward in those kinds of things. Anyway, Cal Poly, being Southern California, being Central California, and the attitudes in some places where people do not support oil and gas, I had bought into all of that. I was there too. Mm-hmm. And I could never imagine how people would be so thoughtless as to hurt the earth, those kinds of things. And I met my husband in my physics class at Cal Poly, and he was my lab partner. And later we fell in love and we married. Well, he graduated a year before I did. So I was still in school. And then he moved to Bakersfield where he got a job. So when we got married, I moved to Bakersfield. So my choices in Bakersfield Bakersfield is not a big place. I mean, a lot of people know where it is, but it's not a big place. And so there's kind of two things I could do. I could go into agriculture with my soils background, or I could go into oil and gas. And obviously the choice was easy because there was so much more money in oil and gas than there was in agriculture for what I was doing. And so I went to work for the Getty Mining Company. And Getty was conducting an experiment. They were comparing two pilot processes to extract oil from a surface deposit of diatomaceous earth. And of course, diatomaceous earth. So on this podcast, people know what that is. Diatomaceous earth is kitty litter. Mm-hmm. And it's basically a silicon skeleton, and it's very, very, very porous. And it, in this case, held a lot of oil from a surface deposit. Now, Bakersfield is just rich, just rich with hydrocarbons. Mm-hmm. So much so that you'll have surface deposits, you'll have oil seeps at the surface. It's kind of, I don't want to say easy, but it's not hard to find oil. So the surface deposit of diatomaceous earth was the oil was being extracted. The one process was a solvent process. The ore would move from tank to tank to tank to tank until Mm -hmm. it was washed out. And then the other process was a heat process, a retort process, a giant retort process. Nine stories was the chamber. Very, very hot. 
Anyway, so the ore would go in on a conveyor and go through this process and the oil would come out at the other end. And in both cases, the ore would be bleached completely just soil by mm -hmm. then. All of my work in soil science came into play there and then my new understandings about uh, hydrocarbons as an application of chemistry. So I got interested in oil and I began to understand why people were so fascinated by its properties and its abundance and how we all used it and we all need it and all of that. So my attitudes started softening, obviously, because I really knew what I was talking about by then. I wasn't just going by sound bites as people mm -hmm. might do, especially young people like I was then. So with the Getty Mining Company, I had an opportunity to go into the Getty Oil Company in operations as an engineering technician. And then Getty put me through graduate school in petroleum engineering at University of Southern California. So in Bakersfield, people who know the area know it's like two hours drive over the mountains to get to USC, University of Southern California. So I did that for a few years. And then Texaco bought out Getty. And so they continued the program. And there were a whole lot of new properties that we took on there. And then after that, the Department of Energy had an opening at Elk Hills Naval Petroleum Reserve, mm -hmm. which is another giant oil field just outside of Bakersfield on the west side. Right. Kern River, which is a mm -hmm. famous oil field, Definitely. is on the east side, but Elk Hills is on the west side. And turned out that the government owned several Naval Petroleum Reserves, as they called them. They were naval from, sought, I should say, discovered by the Navy and owned by the Navy. And the reason for the Navy was because the Navy needed to be sure that it had the oil that it needed in case of defense. So there was the Naval Petroleum Reserve number one at Elk Hills. Naval Petroleum Reserve number two was across the street at the Buena Vista field. NPR three was the Teapot Dome mm -hmm. in uh, Wyoming, Casper, Wyoming. NPR four was in Alaska. I think NPR Alaska, as they call it now, is still up there. They've sold the government, the Department of Energy, when it was formed in 1975 by Carter. I guess in 73, we had the oil embargo mm -hmm. where Saudi Arabia retaliated, I want to say, against the United States for supporting Israel in the Israeli war. And the result was that the United States didn't have, well, we thought we didn't have enough oil. So the government, I should say, what was the name of the government entity? I forgot the name of the government agency that was in place at the time before the Department of Energy rationed mm -hmm. gasoline. So you may remember the gasoline lines where Definitely. you couldn't get gasoline until your license plate, I guess it was the last number on your license plate, even a rod, mm -hmm. and the date, even right. a rod. I don't remember what happened if you had like a month that ended on the 31st and then started on the 1st. Did you have to go twice? I don't remember that story. <laughs> I don't remember that either. <laughs> I was young enough, I got through it because my parents were supporting some of my efforts on uh, going up and down the street in my car, you know, <laughs> because I was having a couple of jobs myself, but I didn't realize how really my parents, and I'm sure your parents as well, and family support was important back then just to get to college or whatever. I mean, it was just like they went through a lot that I didn't even think about at the time, right, even though right. I was working oh, absolutely. two jobs. You know? yeah. yeah, yeah. And the whole thing was, well, that was where I started to understand something about oil and something about energy and something about our dependence on mm -hmm. foreign energy Security. and mm -hmm. those kinds of things. Then there was a Vietnam War. So, I mean, there was oh, a lot of geopolitics going on in my life. Mm -hmm. 
as all of us we were living right there with that. you. Yep. No yeah, question. yeah. So I got lost in my story. I was telling you about Navy Petroleum Reserves, and I guess it was Nixon through the embargo, and then it was Ford who first approached Congress with a national energy policy or strategy right. to remove our dependence on foreign oil. And then I guess it was Carter who actually opened up Elk Hills to production, full production. It was discovered in 1920. And so it was 1976 that they finally opened it up for production, drilled new wells and put everything online and established the Department of Energy. Congress established Department of Energy to manage all of the Naval Petroleum Reserves and other energy and all of the above, brought it all together, which also the Department of Energy included the Atomic Energy Commission, which is now the National Nuclear Security Administration, mm -hmm. which is responsible for all the weapons because we keep weapons away from the military. The military is not in charge of our weapons systems, the nuclear weapons systems. Those are separated. And that's fair. Mm -hmm. Everyone should be able to have an understanding of the private sector versus the military, and should say the government, the president versus right. the military. Anyway, right. so that's the Department of Energy and its beginnings. And also in that time, I think it was 75 or 77, uh, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve was established, again, to keep us safe, I guess is a way to put it, uh, in case we needed the oil for defense, Strategic Petroleum Reserve. So while the Strategic Petroleum Reserve has been used of late, and I guess President Biden isn't the first one to use it, there's certainly been, he's used it several times. Mm -hmm. But it is of such a national importance to our national security, so important to our national security that only the president can decide to release oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. So, I mean, that's how important it is. Mm -hmm. So it's not a trivial exercise That's right. when the president releases oil. And so one has to examine, is it the proper reuse of it when it was established? So anyway, maybe I think it's about half full, if you will, of its capacity. Mm -hmm. I think its capacity is a million barrels, but it's only ever been authorized to be filled to like 750 or some number like that. And mm -hmm. we're like at five something or... Well, actually, five something after the two releases ago or something. I don't know where we are now. But anyway, I digress. The Department of Energy, you know, has a lot of responsibilities. And so this is so fascinating. I'm loving every minute of this. And I know the <laughs> listeners are. So it's all dots are connecting. Just please keep going. It's wonderful because I know I'd listen to one of your on your podcast, Oil and Gas Upstream, and listen to one of the uh, who you interviewed was yourself, the one that <laughs> talked about your speech that you presented. And part of what you're talking about today is, I guess, excerpts from that in a sense, because it's so fast and, and people need to know about this because there's a true history of uh, developing what we would say, uh, at least trying to aim towards energy policy and issues and views, those kind of things. So please continue to connect these dots for us. Thank you. Thank you. Well, yeah, I'm very interested in this because I feel as though I went on the same path of not really knowing where energy came from or caring. I mean, that was the bottom line. I really didn't care where it came from as long as I had what I needed to a time where I was responsible for national security and energy security and economic security of our nation by being a petroleum engineer 
you know, working for the government, ensuring that we had the supply that we needed at a price that we could afford. So that's a huge responsibility. I huge took it very seriously no and I still take it. I just still take it seriously, even though I'm retired. So I'll tell you about my small business here you know, at the end that. of the story. Sure. So after Carter was Reagan, mm-hmm. President Reagan, and continued the interest in having us be not dependent on foreign sources of oil. Then we had Bush 41, President George Bush, the 41st president. And he continued that defense of our need for energy and our need for energy independence. And that's when I came to Washington was the transition between Reagan and Bush. I served President Reagan while I was at Elk Hills. Mm -hmm. As a petroleum engineer, I don't know if I told that part of the story, in 1985, I left Texaco and joined the Department of Energy as a production engineer, production for about a year, and then I became a reservoir engineer and was responsible for not just a few wells, but fields of wells and Mm -hmm. reservoirs. So Elk Hills had lots of reservoirs, stacked reservoirs, distinct reservoirs, conventional reservoirs, and just prolific But by then, it had already reached its peak production. So then in Washington, I served under President Bush, George Bush. And then, oh, gosh, I'm I'm losing my connections here. You have seven presidents to talk about. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So so then there was Bush, and then there was, um, oh, Clinton, President Clinton. Right. And President Clinton was very supportive of oil and gas, but definitely was supportive of renewable energy mm-hmm. and supported investments in renewable energies, you know, the wind and the solar and lots of big sub- subsidies for renewable energies to launch those markets. And then President Bush, 43, President George W. Bush, mm-hmm. with the National Energy Strategy, and I got to go work in white at the White House for a short time on the National Energy Policy. President Bush included a piece on technology. So I was at the White House, like I said, supporting development of the policy with respect to federal lands and technology and the investment in new technologies and use of new technologies on federal lands for energy security. And then it also included investments in renewable energy. So everybody's been all of the above for some time because the motivation was that we were dependent on people who didn't like us for our fundamental energy security. Mm-hmm. After President Bush, who was Obama, President Obama. Mm-hmm. Obama mm-hmm. And President Obama was not supportive of oil and gas and was only supportive of renewable energies. In the 2020 budget that the president sent to Congress, there was no provisions for oil and gas research. So that was an interesting time. Congress gave us a small budget in order to keep the doors open because how can you be the Department of Energy and not have an oil and gas office? So we had a small budget. And of course, we had research investments at the time. So, I mean, there was a lot of work to do. We just couldn't invest in new technologies. And so let me back up a little bit and tell you when I got to Washington, when I did, mm-hmm. serving all these presidents. But what I actually did was when I first arrived under President Bush 41, I was responsible, I was a program manager for Elk Hills and for Teapot Dome and for Casper. There was two of us, and we had all those responsibilities. And and our our main deliverable to Congress was to prepare a maximum 
MER, maximum efficient rate of production that would ultimately lead to maximum ultimate recovery of those resources that the government owned, so oil and gas resources. And so I was the program manager for those areas. And then I had in 1992, I had the chance to go into the research organization. The research organization was the geoscience, the division of geoscience or something like that. I can't remember now. I have to look at my resume and <laughs> recall all those things. But that became the oil and gas office. And it was focused on research, oil and gas, increasing our energy security through investment in advanced technologies, both for increasing ultimate recovery, of course, for everyone. Mm -hmm. But the notion was that when you take government resources and you invest in new technologies, then everybody gets the benefit of this new knowledge, of this new capability, of this new ability to use this new technology, as opposed to private research investments, private companies investing in their own proprietary research. So privilege is their money. That's what they get to do. Mm -hmm. So when you use taxpayer dollars to invest in research and technology development, then you are able to share all of that information with everyone. It's completely transparent. Now, there are some privileges for those who take the risk, the bleeding edge, as they say, where the information can be held from the public domain for a short period of time, like two years, give uh, those companies that made that investment with the government in partnership with the government that little bit of advantage, but then ultimately everything goes into the public domain. Warts and all, successes and failures, it's all mm -hmm. there, That all that data, all that information. So basically the Office of Oil and Gas invested in, would put out solicitations and invite people to send in proposals. We're exploring new ways to treat, produce water. We're exploring unconventional resources. You know, mm -hmm. what does it take? Both in terms of requests for information where people in the private sector can put information into the government and say, yeah, you should think about this. You should think about that. You should think about, this is a challenge that if you could crack this nut, you could really enable some new capabilities in terms of our understanding and our capabilities to produce. And so lots of solicitations. And the trick, though, is that the government pays 80%. And so there's a 20% cost share, minimum 20% cost share. And it's along a technology readiness level, TRLs. And so the lower TRLs, the further away the technology might be or the idea, the concept might be from commercialization, the more government funds are used. So that's the 80% government, 20% private sector. Closer you get to commercialization, moving up the TRL line, you start getting into demonstrations, pilots, showcasing, if you will, the technology, then the cost share goes up to 50%. So there's a lot of skin in the game for companies mm -hmm. that partner with the government in terms of this new technologies and new investments. So I was in the research organization and I was part of these teams that would evaluate proposals and score them. And then we would have to defend our score. And those were kind of fun because it was all tech talk, right? All the stuff that we know and love and really sharing, you know, why this technology, this research project was a better risk for the government funding than some other. And, oh, sometimes it was really, really tough because so many really good ideas came forward. But, you know, you only have so much money to mm -hmm. spend. And so that's, you know, how tight the competition was. And the government's not required to make 
those investments. If there's not a good idea, if there's not a good project, we wouldn't have to spend the money. But there was always more opportunities, more really good ideas than there really was funding. So I did that starting, like I said, in like 1992. And then I became the division director in, I can't remember when, (laughs) I was the division (laughs) director for a long time. So then my job was to lead a small team that was responsible for issuing those solicitations, managing those portfolios of different kinds, onshore, offshore, produced water, conventional, unconventional, and then specialty technologies like hydraulic fracturing. And in the end here, we had a series of 17 field laboratories where we would look at the resource and the companies would put together a portfolio of technologies that wanted to try taking it from, you know, sometimes drilling a well to core to stratigraphic wells just to see what's down there to actually different ways of fracturing, hydraulic fracturing, different kinds of fracturing, not just water, and then different kinds of measurements and different technologies that could measure. And over the course of time, I mean, a lot of the capabilities that we have now are due to the early work of the Department of Energy's investments in oil and gas research. So let's say hydraulic fracturing. The government was the first to make big investments in hydraulic fracturing and also the first to make big investments in horizontal drilling. Mm -hmm. And as everything being in the public domain, the industry took those two technologies, put them together, and gave us the energy independence that we enjoyed. So after President Obama, we had President Trump. And so we finally had the energy independence that we had sought after from 1973 That's right. of the oil embargo into 2017, 18, 19, and 20. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, COVID hit and a lot of other things hit and sort of turning th- everything upside down. But like I said, I've had a fascinating career yes, with, uh, with the My government. Goodness. It was a sad privilege, but it was a privilege nonetheless when the Deepwater Horizon, the BP Deepwater Horizon, the President Obama found himself, well, the President Obama, let me t- finish that story, who was not supportive of oil and gas, found himself as the president of Deepwater Horizon and the president of hydraulic fracturing. For hydraulic fracturing, we'd have public meetings and there'd be such protests against hydraulic fracturing. Even cities that didn't have any oil and gas would pass resolutions about hydraulic fracturing would not be allowed in their city. My goodness. Yeah. I remember that. Remember the contest on that for sure. Yeah. No question. Yeah. So when BP Deepwater Horizon happened 2010, President Obama established a national commission on the BP Deepwater Horizon oil spill and offshore drilling. That was the official name of it. And I was embedded with the commission. I was responsible for standing up the commission. He, of course, appointed all of the commissioners, but they had really, really talented people on the team who supported the commission with seven commissioners. And so there was like a team of like, I don't know, 20, 30 people who were supporting uh, the commissioners. And they were together for six months. They had a very short window in which to investigate and come up with recommendations. And so that was my responsibility to stand them up and then to sunset them and then to be responsible for all the data that they gathered and put it into the public record and ensure that it was available for whomever. And lots of different programs outside of the Department of Energy, not the Department of Energy, were started using the funds and the fees that were collected from the parties that were responsible for the accident. So it was very serious, very scary, very unfortunate, very sad, very sad. Because 
it could have been prevented. Mm -hmm. And of course, I feel really confident saying we'll never see anything like that again, because there was just such an outcry within the industry mm -hmm. about the kinds of decisions that could be made, should be made, should not have been made, those mm -hmm. kinds of things. And then just a totally different cultural change, I think, mm -hmm. in attitudes about our responsibilities, the social license to operate, mm -hmm. even though we're providing a public service, that people's lives are at the forefront of our energy security. You know, we have 11 people who never came home from work. Mm, that's right. It was really, really shocking the whole time. So I remember very clearly in being in the energy business, it was just, oh my, it's so uh, earth-shaking. And this is fascinating. Yeah, I'm thinking, you know, we need to have you back because what you've done is you've given us a journey, not only about yourself and your journey, but a journey in history, energy history, which a lot of folks need to hear, even in our own energy industry, to go back to the years from 73 on to now to show where we've actually gone and where we need to go. And you lived a life of curiosity and research and looking for doors to open and you'd enter those doors. I see the advice that you can take already from what you've given along the way. I tell how you manage your time has to be very uh, thought out. So a lot of the questions I would have on your dashboards or metrics and your life, you know, how you planned it and so forth, you've really explained that to a certain degree by how you have to measure things all along. And so I definitely would love to have you come back. One question though, you talked about consulting. We definitely don't want to just stop where you were and move forward, but next time we have you back, but I'd like to hear about your consulting, what you're doing now. So what I'm doing now is also really fun. I retired from the Department of Energy in August of 2021. And two things. One was I loved, loved, loved working with the national laboratories and with all the scientists and engineers from the private sector who are interested in research, just the curiosity, but the brain candy and just the brilliance of the people. One person does not know everything. That's right. So it really takes a team. But when you can work with people who really, really are masters of their piece of the puzzle, so to speak, and then you can bring them together. I mean, just the conversation is just so enlightening. I mean, your brain just gets so happy from all of these new and happy, great thoughts and how smart we are. And it's just so exciting. So when I retired, I missed that. <laughs> you can't get it anywhere, right? That's right. It's a privilege to be able to be in the center of that kind of environment. So I missed that a lot. So that was the first thing. I missed the brain candy. And then the second thing was, I felt like I was a good steward of taxpayer dollars. Mm -hmm. And I was often disappointed when people would respond to the solicitations for proposals for research. It's not an easy task to put together a research proposal anyway. Yeah, that's right. And then when you have to do it under government procurement laws, it's really, really painful and expensive. So it would be just so frustrating to me when there'd be a really good idea and I would know the team and know that, you know, we're really brilliant people. And then, but for whatever reason, the proposal just wasn't as good as it could have been or as good as other proposals. And so we couldn't select that. We couldn't order it, just didn't make the cut. I kept thinking, if only they had done this, if only had done that. And of course, you can't do that. I mean, these solicitations and the procurement process is just very, very, very tight, very highly regulated. It's uh, no deviations. It's really, really impressive what people have to do to kind of protect that. And of course, it comes from abuses in the past, but mm -hmm. at other agencies, not the Department of Energy. But my point is, is that you can't help people, but in the private sector, you can help anybody, right? That's and right. so I thought, 
if I ever get a chance, I want to help people write good proposals and be more competitive. So they're really good ideas, you know, can come into the space because there's a lot of risk when you take a new idea and try to bring it through the various valleys of death of the research, I should say the technology readiness levels. And Mm -hmm. just really, it's fabulous when a new technology can actually come into market because that's what the investment was for and so needed. Anyway, so that's what my company, Energia Consulting LLC, that's what I do. And what's a website? Is there a website or an email that they can contact yes, you? Yes, it's EnergiaConsultingLLC.com. It's not the most uh, <laughs> user-friendly <laughs> website, but it is my website. It's E-N-E-R-G-I-A, Energia Consulting, LLC, com. And my story is on there and what we do is on there and how to reach us is on there and all of the above. So I get both. I get to help people. Now, I don't write proposals. I feel bad when people think I write proposals and then I have to tell them how they don't. No, I don't even guide them. I have them do their whole proposal. Ah, okay. All the rules, all the evaluation criteria, everything you need to know is in the funding opportunity announcement. Unfortunately, those announcements are like a hundred pages uh-huh. and they're in government speak. <laughs> That's right. I've been through them before. Yes. It's painful. It it's is painful. more than painful, but you know, it's really, <laughs> That's, right. That's right. You know, it's all there. I mean, I don't bring anything like new, if you will, that kind of thing, but because it is hard to put that together, you can miss something or whatever. So what I do is I review the proposal afterwards, you know, and I give them feedback on what they're missing, what they should have, what they're just, it doesn't make sense. It's internally inconsistent, something, whatever, whatever is the feedback. And it helps them be more competitive. And so, no, I don't really reveal my client list because research is still a very small space. But I will say that the Department of Energy currently has $1.1 trillion to spend on energy transition technologies. So I think that there's a lot more competitions, even though there's a lot of competitions going on right now, there's going to be a lot more. And certainly in our space, there's a lot of opportunity. Now, there's no opportunities for like enhanced oil recovery or something with respect to CO2, carbon capture, storage, you know, there's none of that. However, carbon storage uses petroleum engineering skill set. Geothermal uses petroleum engineering skill set. So there are some areas where petroleum engineers have a lot to offer, not the least of which that, you know, we want people to go into the petroleum engineering sector and we want petroleum engineers to stay in the sector and really take us on into the low carbon economy because Paris Agreement 2015, they never said end oil. The consumption profile in 2015 at the Paris Agreement was still predominantly hydrocarbons, is much less coal, but natural gas and oil, and then like 80%, and then you got to the renewables for 2050. So it was only recently that someone said, oh, we have to end oil because of the Paris Agreement. That's not true. Well, this has been so wonderful. And I definitely want you to come back, as I mentioned earlier, and so many things to talk about, and especially in the environment we're in. Thank you for being with us. Uh, Energy Fellows Podcast, it's been an honor to have you on this show. And for the items, and when I mentioned earlier in the podcast, you can go to show notes. Uh, make sure that those items are stickers you can obtain after completing a survey. Uh, for your hard hat or for your laptop or for friends. And so please remember that. Definitely go to the show notes for also the websites and email information and so forth. And you've been listening to the Energy Fellows podcast, and you've been listening to Elena Melkert. 
unbelievable history of her life, but also history of energy from security to education to all the efforts out there that we need to learn more about. And so please stay tuned for upcoming episodes of the Energy Fellows. And remember that the future of energy depends on us. Join us again next week on the Energy Fellows podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com. Oh,